just one small little note as we get started. I do believe that I was, I was looking into this earlier this week, and there was, I think, registered in the United States, there's 127 churches that are registered that incorporate snake handling into their worship services um, based on uh, this text and one like it. Um, just a brief note of where we're going this morning. It won't involve snake handling. Um, hopefully we'll see why from the text. But in all seriousness, we have spent the last couple of weeks looking at the instructions that Jesus has been giving to the 72 disciples, um, beginning with verse 1 all the way through, through 16 at this point. And he gives them, just by brief reference, he gives them the information and the requirement of ministry, all the way down to how dangerous ministry is going to be. Um, Again, the picture of lambs being sent out among wolves. And this isn't for our sake to easily slip right past, but rather he explains it at length so that we would pause and take it all in. He expresses to the disciples and to our sense of ministry as we look at the principles of the text where they were and were not allowed to go, where they were supposed to spend their energy and their time. He even speaks of how they are to treat their hosts. He goes into further detail as we've looked a couple of weeks by now, what they're supposed to eat and how they're supposed to handle food being served to them, all on mission. And then he tells them expressly what to do when they get to a town that welcomes them and exactly what they're supposed to say to them. Yet, after all of this detail that we have looked at for a couple of weeks, do you know what stands out this morning to us that is very remarkable? We know absolutely nothing about the course of their mission. Doesn't that strike you if you think for a minute? We've spent all this time learning what they were supposed to do, what they were supposed to take, how they're supposed to behave, what the interaction was going to be like. And then this major theological statement about the, the villages, whether they receive them or not. And this is what you do if they do or do not receive you. And you'd think what would follow next in the text is us learning about them going to the villages and seeing what exactly took place and how they obeyed these commands and so on and so forth. It would seem logical that that's where the story or the narrative would necessarily go. And yet, here we stand. We're not even told how much time elapsed between verses 16 and 17 of our text. Look at last week we ended with all of this great detail from verse 1 all the way to 16. I briefly read for you verse 16 at the close of that that text there. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Verse 17, the 72 returned. So see, we're not even giving a little picture of what they did, how it went, or how much time it took. And as a reader, you have to ask yourself this question, why not? It seems, once again, I would anticipate us following the disciples on an epic journey of some kind. We'd see what's taking place and hear their sermons, or read them as they were recorded. But we don't. Why not? this is important. I think it's a point of instruction for us between verses 16 and 17. The reason Luke doesn't follow the trails of the disciples on their journey is so that we would keep our focus as readers upon Jesus and his instruction rather than the various stories and experiences of the disciples. That's instructive for us 
Because this is why it's so important each time we come to these texts that are historically conditioned. They are culturally set in a place, in time, where certain aspects unto the disciples are unto them and not unto you. There are ways in which you read a text and recognize, well, that's not expressly for me to stand this morning and take my sandals off and dust off the dust from there, speaking to the city of Pittsburgh in a particular manner. Right? So we understand, well, how do we then, do we just end the text? Do we just study it as a sterile examination of what God told somebody else at a different point in time? No. There's still something deeply important for us to receive from each and every text. And I point that out to you because, once again, we don't learn a lot about the disciples and their mission. And the point of that is so that we, today, reading the text and studying the text, receive our Lord's instruction to the disciples. And we learn what he has, not just for them, but also for us as well. The emphasis in the text so far, and will continue this morning, to be on the mission of the church and the proclamation of the kingdom that we participate in. With that said, of how important it is to read the text as it's being taught to us about our Lord's instruction, what is he saying? Our text this morning opens up with a modest report, very brief, regarding the historical situation. But, as I said before, this historical situation that we read of really just serves as a bridge into more instruction. So when we look at 10, 1 through 16, the emphasis is upon our Lord and his instruction. As we go forward in 17 through 24 this morning, the emphasis is once again on our Lord and his instruction. Notice just the modest report as we get started. Verse 17, as I said, no time. We don't know how long it took them to preach in the various villages of Galilee, but this is the winding down of our Lord's ministry in Galilee, and the report is not good as far as their response is concerned. But we have a modest report come in from the disciples sometime after their ministry in verse 17. The 72 return. Notice how they returned. They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's the sum total of their ministerial experience that we have access to. Now, as you recall, we've touched on it just a little bit earlier. If we were to go back over the instruction of verses 1 through 9 or so, 1 through 11, there is zero statement in there regarding them performing exorcisms. We don't see anything in there to go and exercise demons. So it's interesting to us at 17, they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. You go back to the original instruction and say, what is exactly taking place? For me, I'm trying to help with the argument that verse 9, the charge to go forward and heal the sick, is tied to them subjecting demons in the Lord's name. In other words, the statement of healing the sick and the power over demonic hosts are united in the health of people. That's what the, what the disciples are doing, bringing health, mental health, physical health, spiritual health to the people in the villages of Galilee. And this brings them a particular enjoyment in ministry, a point of joy of seeing broken people restored 
of seeing people with various ailments being renewed, this brings them a source of great joy to see people spiritually nourished and physically nourished to health. This is a point of great rejoicing. They come back and immediately make that note. That was a particular piece of joy, seeing people with ailments brought to renewal. But notice carefully what we're given now. As the text moves forward, we're given a modest report about the positive portrait of the disciples. Now, remember, at this point in time throughout the narratives, we've seen the disciples kind of missing the main point. Right? We, we saw a couple of chapters ago where they were arguing over the exorcism. Shortly after, nobody could perform it. And then they start arguing once again about which one of us is the greatest. And again, you think, what? How is that possible at this point in time to have such strong self-esteem? At really what you fumbled away a handful of times at this point. And then you watch where they go and they say, hey, we told somebody to stop ministering because he was exercising demons. Don't worry, we shut him down because he didn't do it the way that we do. And our Lord, once again, says, no, no, no. If he is not against us, he is for us. And then they move on and they say, hey, you know, do you want us to burn these villages of Samaria, call down fire from heaven and destroy all these people? Um, Once again, no. So at this point in time, we're looking like, okay, guys, where's the growth? Where's the point of growth and development among the disciples as they conduct ministry? And here, we start seeing like a ray of sunlight burst through in some of, uh, of the cloudy narratives where we see a positive portrait being put forward in the rejoicing of the disciples. Notice how they respond to him in verse 17. Immediately the language is significant. They return with joy saying, Lord, that already is a significant growth point and development with the disciples. When you read it in the whole phrase, notice, Lord, Even the demons are subject to us. Now they're getting it. In your name. You see, they address Jesus unequivocally as their Lord. He's not simply a good teacher, a helpful practitioner. He is unto them very personally and meaningfully their Lord. We're not making too much of simply their reference point to him. It is extremely significant. They address Jesus as none other than their Lord. And they acknowledge that any success we've experienced in ministry, any wholeness that we have brought to the lives of other people, has not been on self-skill. To people of brokenness and sorrowful circumstance. Because instruments of healing and helpfulness brings to them a sense of rejoicing. Room with everyone. Or the charisma, or the ingenuity, or the right sense of glory. We'll return upon you. Tremendous point. They're not saying this in a sense of we figured out the magical formula to minister. Simply by whispering or uttering the magical formula of we did it, yeah, down and pray over our food. Pray as brothers and sisters for one another. Pray in small group. Pray together. Have you paused to think? What do I mean when I close my prayers? In G- I doing when I minister or pray in His name, I would say that we are demonstrating Christ. So we pray, dependent upon Him, to mediate Lord. 
Even the demons are subject to us. Notice the text of how he responds. They say, even the demons are subject to us in your name of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, in order, right? So they come back and they say to him, even the demons are subject in order to find other passages to explain this. But if we, as we minister in your name, and he says, I want to talk about something else. I saw Satan fall. You see, we, notice the text. Even the demons are subject. And he said, Paul. And the language that explains the law. In other words, I think we have access to he see Satan fall earlier, like before creation. And is that what he's referring to? He wants to their success is how Jesus saw Satan fall. Here in the text, what does he mean? He means he saw him fall in the ministry of these men. I go here, I think it's, it, it saw Satan fall. When or in what way? Oh, sorry, the scribes. I wouldn't want to put this on the disciples. <laughs> Verse 22. Over in our text, what are we dealing with? Exorcisms, right? Uh, Lord. And he called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan go in on what we're dealing with? And if Satan has risen up against himself to an end, how? So far in the exorcism, he is coming to an end. The final concluding statement of verse 27, but no one can, then indeed, he may plunder his house through the ministry of exorcisms. He is decisively, our Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, which is the controversy of Mark in the binding of the strong man. I saw Satan fall the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Not in another episode historically. Picture of the dragon who then, it's Satan is cast from heaven and then he seeks to devour the church. These other himself and extended in the ministry of the disciples. As way, notice how 18 and 19 serve us as well. Beginning in verse 18, to bind the strong man and plunder his house with gospel goodness. I shall hurt you. Do you see, he's continuing the same argument. Next, should we pull out serpents and scorpions and begin handling them as proof of a dragon? Verse 19, I have given you a thighs over all the power of the enemy. The ministry of the disciples and the ministry of Christ is the beginning, decisively the beginning, of the apostles faced a very difficult death. So certain time, our Lord's promise is not a hair of your head will perish, will rise in resurrection, and not a hair of their head, but preaching and healing those who are in need. And, and think, what applicational piece? If we were to read this about Jesus' instruction and see what application, my own principle of flesh that seeks all that is unlawful, what is my greatest strength and armor? against satanic assault, whereby we... As, as glorious as this ministry is, there is something far more glorious than that. Yes. Even after this tremendous point of rejoicing, he says there is something more glorious yet. Here, it isn't, uh, don't rejoice in this. Like, as in, they are rejoicing. They came back, we're in this pilgrim's journey. 
a number of them. And they're guilty of that. But the point is, one is momentary. Eight of rejoicing, a momentary success. Deepest joy in your life as a believer. This is something that is challenging, the salvation we possess in Christ. That is the deep provisions that have been given, gifts and skills that have been employed, benefits that we bring to our again, that will come and that will go. Don't but rejoice primarily that your name not just for himself. But he rejoices himself as he explains. He looks at these men and says, Your names are written in heaven. In that same hour. So as he's expressing this truth, as he's and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And enter on this part of the text of our Lord's rejoicing to his own beloved children. In fact, if we look at the text very carefully, we see far from being occasion for rejoicing and thanksgiving on a particular people. And he sent his son in love for those people, awkwardness for him. It is a point of rejoicing and thanksgiving over the doctrine of election, over the gift of the dispensing of grace and sovereignty. Notice the two groups present in the text. And you have in your gracious will revealed this truth, the truth. You find out who the little children are. Then turning to the disciples, or the disciples who are here that are now our Lord clearly identifying as little children. And, and so too is each one of us this morning who has laid hold of Christ through faith. A faith that looks outside of yourself for redemption much you bring to the table. A faith like a child looks outside of itself, look within themselves, and apply their own sense of wisdom and sin each and every time. How can I be a better me? So succeed, you can indeed ascend to heaven's hills. You notice we're next week we're going into the next text you see there, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's really in many ways a response to the lawyer who responds to what Jesus just said. In other words, he's going to be that example of a wise and full of self-understanding individual. Look at just briefly as we close, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. (laughs) exhibit A one full of self-wisdom and understanding he stands up as Jesus speaks you've hidden this in your graciousness from the wise understanding hang on a minute if you're so sharp yourself you tell me which is contrary to the one who comes and says indeed these are the words of eternal life I conclude this, our time together with the words of George Whitfield as best as I could think to summarize the text that is historically conditioned but appropriate for our self-understanding as well. And that is, 
I think what captures the thought of the disciples' love of success and ministry and yet our Lord saying, yes, rejoice, but rejoice even more that your name is known of God. I conclude with these words by George Whitfield. Quote, Do not strive to have greatness. Do not strive to have the riches of this world. Do not strive to have honor among men. Do not strive after the pleasures of this world. But strive to have Jesus Christ. End quote. Let's pray. Father.